0: Uh, unfortunately, Mark and I are not going to be doing our weekly roundup uh, just because of the holiday schedule, but I do have some content for you here. This is the latest interview of Jens Nordvig uh, from my colleague Jack Farley over at Forward Guidance. Uh, so hope you enjoy this, uh, your little daily dose of macro during the holidays. Cheers.
1: Happy to welcome back to Forward Guidance Jens Nordvig, founder of Anti Data and Market Reader. Jens, great to see you, man. How are you doing?
2: Good, good. It's been a busy year. I can't believe. Uh, like, when we you speak last time? Was it in April? Yeah, late, late spring, I think. Yeah, so a lot of things have happened, right? That time we were talking about Silicon Valley Bank, and nobody remembers Silicon Valley Bank anymore. So many other things have happened since then.
1: What things are you thinking of in particular?
2: Well, we've had an in- incredible move in the yield curve, right? Just incredible move. First up in yield and now the last couple of weeks down. We've had obviously the attacks in Israel, right? That moved things around dramatically as well for a couple of weeks. And and we continue to have just incredible moves in tech stocks, right? So lots of things going on. Yeah, I think the underlying theme really is that this cycle continues to surprise people. It's evolving in ways people didn't anticipate, including how the the credit dynamics played out, right? So we have some slowing in credit, but it's definitely not played out abruptly like a lot of people feared mm-hmm. back when Silicon Valley Bank and, and other banks were teetering, right? So I, I think a lot of things are playing out slower than people expect, right? So from an analytical perspective, it's a lot to do with, okay, when there's a trend you expect to materialize and it doesn't come... At the timetable, you expect, do you give up on this story or do you say it's, it's just because the lags are long? But that's an important thing to, to to be aware of it right now.
1: Yeah, and you, do you extend it and say, oh, it's still going to happen, it's just going to happen in 2024, and then the spring of
2: twenty. We should happen in summer? The big debate in relation to rates is I think, okay, now we've seen rates go up dramatically. Like, like a couple of weeks ago, we had the whole yield curve was at 5%, right? And that's just a remarkable thing. Like we had essentially zero interest rates for most most of the last fifteen years, right? And people thought, okay, tightening cycle, maybe we can get to two, maybe two and a half, right? And we got to five for the entire curve, and and then you start to have new theories emerge, like, oh, okay, actually the the US economy is not sensitive to interest rates anymore or like some parts of the economy actually benefit dramatically from high interest rates you always have new theories emerge when there's something very new going on and uh, on that front the, the 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 main point i would say is there's just some lags that are really long right so we can think about what's going on in the in the US housing market right a lot of people have a 30 year mortgage <laughs> so for those people who are locked into 30-year fixed, it takes a long time before they feel on their mortgage payments that we have much higher interest rates. But it doesn't mean that the interest rates don't matter. It means that it takes a long time for a lot of borrowers to feel the pain. And I think as we look into next year, that's one of the key things to really think about, okay, how is that transmission mechanism going to play out for the government sector, for the banks, for all the different sectors that will eventually be impacted by the higher rates.
1: Right. So people got a 30-year mortgage at 2%. They are still paying a 2%, even though those interest rates have risen. And if they were to take out that mortgage today, it could be at, at you know 7% or, or 8%. How long does it take? How, what about the lags? Because, okay, you got 30 years, but some people prepay. You know, Prepayment speeds were very high in 2020. I think they bottomed at like 4% or 3%. So like the actual duration is actually more like seven years instead of thirty or something something like that, so is it going to take seven years for all this pain to be seen in the housing sector, or are you going to expect cracks to be seen elsewhere and then there's the corporate sector they oh you know you read articles the high yield market they 've termed out their debt what What do you think as a you know and I should say obviously you're a quantitative very quantitative person
2: one thing we've done uh, at Exanta is that we have calculated essentially kind of disposable income. Like what do consumers have left, right? When they pay their taxes and they pay their mortgages, sometimes you take out what they pay for gas as well, right? Something that's volatile, right? But the key point really when you do those calculations is that the mortgages roll very slowly and the U.S. is special, right? So if you do this calculation in Europe, uh, in the United Kingdom, for example, uh Essentially, because a lot of people have very short-dated mortgages, you can sort of say, rule of thumb, 20% have to roll their mortgage into a much, much higher rate every year, whereas in the US, it's, it's a way smaller amount, right? So that hit to disposable income that you've already seen in Europe, in the Eurozone, in the UK this year, has just not been there. And when you look at how the US consumer has been more resilient, I think that lack of a hit. To disposable income is an important factor. So that's something that I think is kind of logical, but I think a lot of people have been surprised by this year. But as we look into 24 and 25, um, you'll probably see that there's some countries around the world where actually a lot of mortgages have already rolled. It's a little bit too early to say that there will be that effect in the next couple of quarters. But as we look further into the future, it's kind of like they've taken the pain. The pain from high interest rates have been felt to a greater degree. And, and now the U.S. is going to have a catch-up. The easiest way to see it is really in the, the public sector, right? The, the U.S. has a lot of debt. It's not that long-term. Like, the U.S. government didn't turn out its debt. I know Stan Druckenmiller has been pretty vocal about this, saying that the Yellen traded it badly. So we could discuss whether her job is to trade and really like pump out long-term bonds when yields are low. But the bottom line is that they have quite low duration debt. And that means that a lot of debt is going to roll, right? So when we look at our calculations, okay, what's going to be the interest expenditure in the US budget as a percent of GDP, used to be one and a half percent of GDP, it could go to three and a half over a relatively short period of a few years. That's real cash flow that is hitting the U.S. budget, right? And U.S. politics are complicated, so exactly that's going to be handled is perhaps not super predictable. But the bottom line is that if we want to have a stable deficit and we're getting used to extraordinary large deficits, like uh, when we had a president that was called Bill Clinton, we had a balanced budget, right? That's a while ago, right? Now we've gotten used to having big deficits. 7% of GDP is kind of the recent trend, right? All else equal, if it's only the interest expense that moves, that will go to then 9% of GDP. It's just incredibly high numbers, right? So it would be logical if there is some kind of effort to generate revenue or cut expenditure to, to not have the deficit go even wider. It could also be that the bond market tells policymakers that it has to be like that, like it happened in the UK in the August, uh, autumn of, of 22 but the bottom line is that interest expense is going to have real implications and the logical implication of the high interest expense is that you have to cut something else and that's going to then feed back into the economy right so the effects of these high interest rates they don't get they don't get sort of they don't, they don't have their full effect quickly it takes multiple years for the shift in the yield curve that we can see on the screen immediately it, it, takes, it takes a few years really before the full effect of that is going through the cash flows and going into the economy. So I think when I look at the outlook for, for 2020 in the US economy, that's definitely something that creates downside risk to growth. We can go into that. There's quite a few things in play here. Don't forget, we had, we had GDP that in, in the third quarter was almost 5%. an extraordinary number late in the cycle, right? But also one of those numbers where you want to take a step back and think, okay, is that really the trend in the economy or was there something floky? About that number. And, and I think there, there was. We get, we can talk about that in more detail.
0: Hey, everyone. It is getting to be that time of year again. We are four months out from Das London, the largest, oldest institutional conference in crypto. Mark and I have been talking about it for the last couple of weeks. We're both going to be there hanging. Maybe you come to go on a bus tour with us, something like that. But in the meantime, I also know that it's Thanksgiving and it's Black Friday. Well, the good folks at Blockworks Marketing have intuited that exact need and we've whipped up a little Black Rock Friday promo for you. See what we did there? Yeah, because the institutions are coming. So anyway, if you head over right now to the DAS London page, and if you go check out the group ticket section, you will, for the next five days, get a 20% off if you use code BLACKROCKMARGIN. That's code BLACKROCKMARGIN on the four-pack of ticket group section. So grab folks from your family, grab folks from your company, hop on a plane, and I will see you in London on March 18th to the 20th. Largest institutional conference in all of crypto, and again, that is code Rock Margin. See you there.
1: What do you think is going to happen? I mean, do you think that high interest rates are contractionary? I mean, because now there's there's some people who say actually high interest rates are stimulative because people who own short-term you know fixed income assets they just receive more in cash. And yeah, okay, if one uh, percent of the GDP used to be interest expense, now it's three percent. It's not like the government has to spend less money unless there is a concerted political effort, which there may be. But, you know, all these programs are still in place and you just issue more. Who's
2: going to make a lot of of, of money on the higher interest rates? So who owns a lot of cash like instruments? So Apple, Meta, those types of companies, Google, they have a lot of those instruments on their books. And they definitely are going to have a higher interest income as a function of that happening. But are they going to spend more as a function of that? Probably not. On the consumer side, right? we're going to have some people who are a kind of, uh, should we call it wealthy, that uh, have higher income from those types of investments, like Jeff Bezos probably has higher interest income than he used to have, right? Is he going to consume a heck of a lot more? Probably not, right? So what I'm getting at is that it really matters more on the income distribution. These gains are falling. And I think any research on, you know, excess savings broken down by, by income suggests that the excess savings are really being exhausted for the low income groups, right? And we know the credit card debt, is, is, debt service and that's going up. So I think on a net basis, uh, pretty clear which direction interest rates are impacting the economy. And it's going to be felt with a lag and it's going to be something that's going to be important for next year. I'll just make one other point, right? When we, when we look at what's going on in the U.S. economy, um, you made reference to there's certain like programs that have been in place, either structural programs we have for, for transfers, but we also had specific programs that were invented in the COVID shock, right? So we, we've had a program that was an employee retention credit, right? Companies that didn't lay off workers in 2020 and 2021 were entitled to certain tax credits. And we've had a a whole industry of consultants, accountants and so forth popping up that help people file those tax credits this year. So, essentially restating tax return for previous year, try to get that tax credit. And you can actually see those uh, in the fiscal accounts, right? If you look at the tax credits, uh, they had a huge spike in Q2 of this year and Q3 of this year. And I actually think that if you look at the trajectory of GDP, the fact that we had a spike in those tax credits that is literally being delivered as a check to people, it probably had an impact on the GDP trajectory, right? So when I think about what's going on now, there was something fluky about Q3. Those tax credits might have been a part of that, right? That's going to reset now. Actually, that program has effectively been shut down and uh, totally normalized, right? A lot of things are, are sort of coming to an end, Special forces that were in place because of the COVID-specific programs are finally running their course, right? And that's going to have an impact on the economy as we look into 24 and 25. We're going to back to a more normal world with much higher interest rates, uh, and that's going to be restrictive overall. We also obviously have a situation where financial conditions have been moving around very dramatically in september and october now they come back again but overall financial conditions are tighter right so that's also something that's relevant for the outlook
1: yes they have been tightening consistently this year in in the bond market yeah past two past three weeks stocks and bonds have rallied so they've they've eased dramatically so I, i don't i don't think of you as someone who is in either camp you know of recessionista or in the in the no landing camp what have you been thinking about the economy and yeah i mean do you think that we won't have a recession we will have a recession or do you think it's it's unknowable and that's kind of not a question that's worth asking or worth thinking about?
2: Well, everybody who is investing have to think about growth, right? It's the most important variable. Maybe with the exception of really high inflation as we've had the last couple of years, but growth is going to be much more important again now, right? Because inflation is out of this extreme territory that we came from and now we have the growth variable is going to kind of drive everything. So, I think it's very clear that we're heading to a a lower growth period. We had uh, some temporary factors that boosted growth in Q3. They are reversing now. As we're recording this podcast, we had home sales were were the lowest in in a long time, right? I think we have a number of indicators that all point to a degree of slowing. Claims is a good indicator to look at, it's a weekly indicator. We have to be very careful about how it's seasonally adjusted, right? But if we are careful of how it's seasonally adjusted, it is gradually weakening. Credit is finally weakening. Like we had a a multi-month period where credit was surprisingly resilient, despite. Oh, we the, talked about it, yeah. yeah, dis- the, the, despite the, the the shocks that we all saw and observed, uh, credit held up quite well in the U.S. Um, this summer much better than in Europe. Like in Europe, credit is contracting. Literally, less credit being extended than in the past. In the US, we're going towards close to zero credit extension very recently. So that's a new thing that's deteriorated. So I think there are a lot of things that point to substantially weaker growth. I think, what does a recession really mean? To me, the key thing is that we kind of move below potential so that the labor market has some deterioration as well. That's going to put some pressure on wages. And really for the Fed, the most important variable probably that they look at right now is what's going on with services prices, right? And it's all linked, right? If we have a growth below potential, the labor market getting less tight, less pressure on wages, then they can have conviction that service price pressure is also moderating. And if that's the case then they don't need as high real interest rates as they have now. Again, I mentioned that the whole yield curve was sitting at 5% a couple of years ago. Excuse me, a couple of weeks ago, right? And that was actually consistent with real interest rates in the yield curve being priced around 2.5% forever. That's that's pretty extraordinary. We got used to a situation a couple of years ago where... There was a strong, strong consensus that we were going to have zero real interest rates forever. Maybe we needed negative real interest rates to keep the economy going, right? And now we got to two and a half, and and there was debate about whether it can go even higher. But that historically has really been something that could only happen if you had incredibly strong productivity growth. Incredibly strong, right? So... The last time we had very, very strong productivity growth in the U.S. economy and also high real interest rates was in the mid-90s. We had some, some years where it looked like the trend in productivity was 3-4%, right? We've gotten used to, before the COVID shock, the productivity growth was like 1% if we were lucky, right? But the only way you really get to a situation where real interest rates are dramatically higher than what they have been over the last 15 years. If you have some kind of belief that AI is totally going to change the world, all companies are going to have massive productivity gains. And I I run a company, Market Reader, where we use AI aggressively. I think it's fantastic. I'm definitely bullish on AI. But I don't think at the economy-wide level, we're going to have a situation where Uh, productivity growth is just going to explode higher very quickly. We've looked at some surveys of CEOs to just give you some data that documents that, right? And most CEOs, even if they are investing aggressively in AI, they will say, okay, we expect the benefit from these investments to be three to five years out in the future, right? So it's not something that necessarily is going to have a big impact on macro data in 24, 25 Maybe after that, there'll be an effect, right? We don't know yet. And certainly it'll be odd if the Fed sets policy based on those things, right? So if you look at the infamous dot plot, right, they still have long-term nominal interest rates that are expected to be uh, 2.5%. So call that R star or whatever you want to call that thing. So in real terms, in real terms, that's just barely positive, right? So the Fed are thinking that we're going to have slightly positive, call it half percent, real interest rates, and the market had two and a half. So you could do percentage five five hundred percent above what the the, the Fed does are so that's that's something that looked a bit extreme. And if I could just say one more thing about that, right? We we've been through just an incredible period over the summer here, right, where there was a huge focus on supply. For good reasons, we have big fiscal deficits. They, the Fed will need to sell a lot of bonds over it's the next few years. And the Treasury would have to sell a lot of bonds, yeah. A lot of bonds, yeah. Although they, they're trying to be careful in the sense that when they decide how many bonds to sell, they don't want to shock the market. And, and you know, if they sold 20 billion of, of bonds one quarter, they don't want to have to sell 40 billion bonds the next quarter. So they increase the auction amounts only slightly. And they fill the gap with T-bills, right? So they've sold a lot of T-bills to avoid jacking up that auction schedule too much, right? But yeah. we've had it. And yeah. for
1: our viewers, that's short duration instruments, which you'll just roll and the market can absorb easily. Whereas for a 30-year bond, that takes up a lot more balance sheet than a you know, a one-month treasury bill.
2: Yeah, there's just so many players that can absorb the T-bills, whereas like, who is going to buy the 20-year and the 30-year? There's just a much, much narrower set of investors that actually want to do that especially when the yield curve is, well, was inverted, right? It still is to some degree. So there's no pickup in the long end. But we've come to a point, right, where those yield concerns were very, very prevalent. And what has ended up happening is the same that has happened in every single tightening cycle that I've studied. Like look at all tightening cycles over the last 40 years, right? you always have a very, very close correspondence between what the short end is doing and the long end, right? So we can focus day and night on what's going to be the bond supply. But if you're doing that without paying attention to what the short end is doing, you're going to ma- miss the rally, right? So we can discuss whether two-year is going to rally more than the 10-year than the and the 30-year. But you cannot deny that those two things are extremely correlated. Historically, they always peaked almost on the same day. And it looks like in this cycle as well, right, that we've definitely had a rally in the, in the, in the, the short end and the long end coincide over the last several weeks. Uh, so that correlation is still there. Despite the very legitimate concerns about the, the supply, you just can't dismiss that correlation. So that's, that's something that's really important to think about and uh, something that's going to be very relevant to rates trading, right? And that's why when you think about those real interest rates, well you can argue, okay, we should have some extra compensation for the supply, right? And certainly, like when I look at what's happened in the last couple of weeks, when you have a 30-year auction, and then, okay, the whole yield curve spikes, you know, 15 basis points right after the auction, okay, that's a bit scary, and it feels a bit like an emerging market situation. But if you take a step back, you can see, okay, if the short end is under control, it still maps into the long end, right? So... What I'm trying to say is you can't focus only on the supply dimension, right? It's, it's relevant. It definitely generates wall around the auctions, but the curve is anchored in the short end. And if the economy is going to weaken, the whole curve is going to rally.
1: Yes. And the short end has been rallying with the long end
2: over the past
1: three weeks. I don't I actually don't know about, about the, the, the curve the, the dynamics, like the, the inversion. But does, does this, the rally in the short end make sense to you?
2: I think the key thing now for the Fed are these services prices that we spoke about a little bit, right? And we've seen some leading indicators of services prices looking better for a while, like wage growth has moderated. Various types of measures of of labor market tightness have looked less tight. Global services prices have clearly flipped. So we've been waiting for some months that there was going to be an improvement in the U.S. And the last data we had, the last inflation data, uh, was by far the best inflation reading on services prices that we've seen, in essentially in two years. So when we analyze inflation, I really like to look at medians. Like rather than stripping out some category you don't like or the other category... Why not just look at the whole distribution of inflation and say, okay, the median good, the one that's right in the middle distribution, how much inflation did they have there? And service price inflation in the last reading was literally 2% annualized. So, And that's after they they were close to 4% annualized for the last two years, right? So a dramatic improvement there. Obviously, it's just one month. The Fed is not going to set policy based on one month. But that's the first sign that things are getting really a, a lot better. If we have another couple of readings of services prices being essentially consistent with target or getting close to target, we don't even need to have 2% services price because goods prices are less than 2 right? So you can have 2.5% service price and and the economy is still uh, operating consistent with target. If we have a few more months of of those services prices looking better, the Fed is going to be much more relaxed. Relaxed meaning inclined to cut,
1: going to cut, or just not hiking? Because, okay, the, if you know, say, oh, the the tiers rallying because we know the Fed is done hiking, which is probably true.
2: It's going to be a sequence, right? So, yep. so the, the first step is that they stop hiking, right? We've already uh, gone through that. Uh, the next phase, which we're in now, is that they do this kind of hawkish hold, right? Where they say, okay, we don't need to hike anymore, but we're cautious, we're not sure. And that process probably going to last through the end of the year, right? And then growth is going to be key. If we have the services prices for a couple of months looking like they are getting much closer to target and then growth weakens at the same time, the debate about cutting is obviously going to ignite pretty quickly. Not because they're going to operate the same way as in the past, where they said, okay, economy is weak. We have to do everything we can immediately. It's not like that. But it's because rates are very, very high, right? We have 5.5% interest rates. If it feels like inflation expectations are getting totally anchored in line with target, realized inflation is getting in line with target, when we literally talk about, you know, like just incredibly high real interest rates. right? So the debate is going to be not, oh, we're in a panic, we need to get rates back to zero, but real interest rates are just way too high. We don't need these extremely high real interest rates anymore. And I think within a couple of inflation reports, if if services price is under control, and, and most likely that will happen at, at a time when, when growth is weaker, that debate I think really the, the it's going to heat up in in Q one. When you say they're high historically,
1: I think you're talking about the t- like Treasury Inflation Protected Securities. So if, you know the the nominal yield baked in, and then minus how much the market is signing inflation will be in the future, rather than taking the rate minus what CPI was in the past, and that data exists for a long time. But I think well, look in the late '90s, tips were invented, so. How long is this data set going back? Like, is it possible that the 1980s real interest rates, if we had a tips market, would have actually been at, you know, 5%? Yes.
2: Yeah, so, so you're right, obviously, that the tips market doesn't go back that far, right? So we have our own series that has more history in it. There's different surveys of inflation expectations that have existed throughout time. Michigan survey exists further back, for example, right? So you can create your own inflation adjusted uh, series. Uh, I think really anyway... Anyway, you slice and dice the data. If we're getting close to target with realized and inspected inflation, then you just look at the history of the normal rate. It's like a long time since we had 5.5% interest rates. We certainly have to go back to the, um, the pre global financial crisis era, right? And even there, we had periods where rates were low. So five and a half percent is a high interest rate and and there's a debate about what the equilibrium interest is, right? But the Fed has not come to the conclusion that the real equilibrium is much above zero. They have not reached that conclusion. They still talk about half a percent or something like that. So if they're comfortable with the inflation outlook, if they have concerns about downside risk to growth, it is very inappropriate to have Real interest rates in the two to three percent range, right? So that's why, and I'm not I don't think the Fed is gonna flip very quickly. So it's not something I'm saying the Fed is gonna come out tomorrow and 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 look scared and sound dovish. But I think once they get some confirmation of the data, and especially once the economic data looks softer, the the real issue is that you have potential for big cuts, right? Because if they start from five and a half, and they really think the equilibrium, not, the, not, not, not a, a loose monetary policy, but an equilibrium is two and a half, right? Okay, they have, they have 300 basis points to do, that is to get to equilibrium. They have more than 300 basis points to do if they think they actually need to get easy, right? So we're not talking about that yet. But I think, I think what's interesting here is that, for example, if you look at what's priced from the middle of of 24 to the middle of 25 which is sort of the period where you it's realistic that the, that the easing is really in motion right we have around 100 basis points right but they could potentially do double that so you're more inclined to be longer the
1: tier than, than short it for sure
2: yeah so i i think we've been for a couple of years where the the right trade was to trade the interest rates from the short side yeah. but that's no longer the case like the rates have Rates have clearly already peaked. We've been trading rates from the, from the long side in Europe for, for two, two months now, right? So I feel very strongly about There's I literally can't see a scenario where the ECB hikes rates further. I, I, can't, I can't come up with a situation where they do so, right? So that, that creates an asymmetric situation. They're going to fight it. Policymakers are going to fight it. They're gonna, they are not going to say they're ready to cut until they actually are ready to cut, right? So you have to be careful about how you read the communication. But yeah, we're definitely at a turning point for rates. We did a we did a client call on October 10. That was about peak rates globally. I remember it's the most well attended client call we ever did, and it was a very controversial topic. But I think it's a little bit less controversial now to say that we have passed peak. So that's how quickly the narrative is unfolding. Yeah, and what about currencies? You know, on this
1: program, we've done a lot on bonds and the yield curve, but I feel like we've, you know, I have neglected covering. The moves in the dollar and FX and, and currencies, and so I'm really glad you're here because I know a lot of the work that you do is is on currencies. So tell us, just you know, take us up to speed on the, the the recent moves in dollar, and then where do you think things are are headed, and and why?
2: Well, we we just had an extraordinary summer. We we talked about it with these yield moves, but it was not just the yield moves. We had a summer where U.S. growth just continued to come in better than expected. And we had these upward revisions to the U.S. outlook at the same time as everybody else were revising down their numbers, right? So very unusual to see like the biggest economy in the world going in one direction and the rest of the world going in the opposite direction, China and Europe in particular. So that led to very big moves in markets, right? When you have these type of divergences. And that's... That's now run its course, right? So now we're 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 heading into a situation where, yeah, we've had the peaking process and rates, the outperformance and US growth has has run its course, we're coming back to Earth. And then the, the the huge question for trading risk assets for trading the dollar is always what is the global growth dimension looking like, right? Because global growth has absolutely been weak, right? So it was actually pretty easy to trade the dollar from Call it call it May to to September October right because interest rates were going up in the U S global growth is very weak those are the most po- two important drivers of, of the dollar and they both were sort of dollar bullish uh, right now we we have a tricky situation where we have a pretty clear turn in U S rates fixed income vol is coming down which is also something that's often important for the dollar but the global growth dimension is very complicated right so we've had a period where risk premium came down and equities rallied very hard very very hard in in november credit assets globally also re- rallied very hard like we had a lot of credit spread indicators that spiked quite dramatically in september october and then came right back like all the tightening was just gone in a couple of weeks so that's sort of a relaxation in relaxation trade right and relaxation trade often is dollar negative versus emerging market currencies against the Australian dollar and so forth. But now it so feels like, what's normally dollar weak? What, what? The dollar is normally weak when you have a relaxation and improvement yeah. in, in risk sentiment, right? But especially versus emerging market currencies and commodity currencies and so forth. It's different if you compare the dollar against gold or the yen, like kind of safe haven assets, if you want to call them that. And and right now I think we're at a very interesting juncture where we've had this like dramatic relaxation. Risk premium have come down in the yield curve, in credit, in equity assets, right? And now we actually have to look at the data again. It's not just, you know, I, I think it's better to say that the reduction in the term premium in the bond market, like kind of was the epicenter of all the tension, right? And it generated the volatility when it was widening and generated volatility when it was compressing. But now that's kind of already played out. And now it's going to be about the data, right? So we could have a situation where this dollar weakness that has been in motion for a couple of weeks also changes nature. So instead of being dollar weak versus risky assets around the world, it becomes perhaps the dollar being weak more against the stuff that is... Okay, when growth is weak, so it could be gold, it could be you know Swiss franc, those types of assets, and I think this is something that is really important to think about when you think about the dollar. That there's it's not like there's one dollar, right? We ha- it's very different to trade dollar EM and trade dollar versus the yen, and uh, I'm it's different from last year. Last year we had also a big move in US rates, and then we relaxed. But then what happened was, in addition to what was happening in the US, we had China coming back from their COVID lockdowns. So that generated some growth boost. We had Europe coming out of their energy crisis because of the Ukraine war. At this point, it's a little bit hard to see. Okay, where is it we're going to get that growth boost from? And that means that the composition of any dollar weakness is going to be different from a situation where it's a growth bullish move in in international risk assets. So you say. Uh, dollar versus EM emerging market currencies is different
1: than the dollar yen. Are you saying it's like a a spectrum of which currencies are risky relative to the dollar? And no. you know the Brazilian real is a risk currency relative to the dollar, whereas in dollar yen, the yen is actually less risky and more of a risk off asset than the dollar. In other words, when there's a recessionary, you know, and there's a crisis or something like, typically the dollar and the yen will both rally, and the yen may rally even more.
2: Yeah, so I think, I think there's sort of two ways that you can create that spectrum that you're referring to, right? It could be, you know, how how correlated are they with equity assets? That would be one way to rank them, right? So Brazil and Real definitely correlated to, to equity assets, right? Another way to think about it is, are they kind of growth currencies, right? So gold is at the right, at the other end of the spectrum, like growth, Gold is an anti-growth asset. It, it, it's, it performs well when we have poor growth in the world. The yen, Swiss franc kind of have that flavor as well. So very important to think about where are we on that spectrum. It's going to be the high growth or the low growth currencies that are going to benefit. And I think this is always what is tricky about a trend. Because I think it's possible that we're embarking on a weaker dollar trend, Right. But the currencies that are going to be leading in that trend is shifting over time. In the initial part of the relaxation, it was the growth-sensitive currencies that were leading, Brazilian, Real, and so forth. As we kind of have had that played out, the relaxation has played out, we have to look at the data and see, are we actually getting anything on the growth front that is incrementally positive? And if that's not the case, then you're going to have currencies like dollar versus gold, dollar versus frisk Frank are actually going to be the ones that are going to be moving most. So I think that's a pretty important distinction given how the macro environment is lining up here. So you've got a bearish view on the dollar. What motivates that? Is it
1: interest rates differentials or growth? Or, you know, you, see, you said interest rate. you said the global growth picture, growth differentials and interest rate differentials. Which of those three or, or any or all are
2: motivating your bearish dollar view? I think we can think about it as a bit of a hangover effect. Right. So we've had a situation, right, where the US economy was supported more aggressively by stimulus than other economies. You can see it in the fiscal deficit. We have incredibly large fiscal deficits. And at some point, we have to pay the price. As interest rate expense goes up, the rest of the expenditure will be under pressure. That's going to be negative for growth. Same thing, you can analyze the balance of payments. Analyze the balance of payments, meaning all the cash flow in and out in the United States. As all the debt that the US has to the rest of the world rolls into higher coupon, we just literally have to send more money abroad as we pay that interest rate. That in itself could be a drag over a two, three-year period on the current account, 1% of GDP. Literally cash flow that's sent abroad. So There is some hangover from the higher interest rates when you are a debtor country, have net external deficit. And that's something that's going to come back and be relevant for the dollar. Then there are considerations around valuations, right? We've had essentially the dollar rallying since 2014. It's like pretty much a 10-year rally. The dollar is strong in a lot of crosses. People look at dollar yen, 150, used to be 80. So it's come a long way, right? Not everything is as extreme as the yen, uh, but certainly from a valuation perspective, it's hard to argue that we're not going to be, well, we are, we're sort of, we're, we're at an elevated position that creates some asymmetry in the in the outlook. Uh, but really, I think the wild card in the outlook is how strong or how weak is going to the, the global economy be, right? So China has a very, very hard time stimulating the economy at this point in time. So that's something that's missing from a global recovery. Europe is really feeling the effects of their tightening, right? So we have very weak growth in Europe as well. So what's missing in terms of generating a very clear bearish dollar outlook is that we don't have a bullish structural growth dimension in play, right? So it's been more about this relaxation from a very negative risk sentiment as opposed to, okay, I'm really bullish China, I'm really bullish Europe. Mm -hmm. And again, that means that any kind of dollar weakness you're going to have it's going to have a little bit different composition from all the uh, dollar bear markets we've seen in the history. So yeah, we're
1: filming this on Tuesday, November 21st. It will
2: likely air on Thursday,
1: Thanksgiving, the, the 23rd. You're saying, is it your dollar bearish view? Is this a short term over trading view or a longer term view? Like, what's the time
2: in the short term, there's some very interesting dynamics in play, right? Because after that dollar rally we had over the summer, like we have Certain so systematic systematic players in the market are extremely long dollars. So there's some very big unwinding potential there. We have we have marvelous that crunch that day and night, right? That that unwinding potential, dollar selling from CTAs is 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 very large, historically large right now. We're also into the end of November. Uh, there's also so-called rebalancing flows that could actually be very dollar negative. So there's sort of a confluence of I wouldn't call them fundamental forces, right? But like technical forces that are actually very dollar bearish right now. So that's sort of one aspect. So I'm trying to sort of separate the short term and long term and the short term. I think there's definitely some asymmetry to the downside for the dollar. Uh, And then the question is really, do you want to actually turn whatever trading you have on the dollar now into a more structural bet? And I think for now, what is missing in order to get really aggressive on any kind of dollar-bearish views is that the global growth narrative is hard to get super bullish except in, in specific pockets.
1: Why is higher interest rates bearish for the dollar? Cause if you have to send more ca- you know, the US government sends more cash abroad because it's a debtor. But what about all the dollar denominated borrowers offshore who are sending their dollars, you know, in some cases to the US?
2: Yeah. Well, so you make a good point. When you when you look at the balance of payments, you certainly have to look at both the assets and the liabilities. Right. So when, when you do this type of analysis, obviously pay attention to not the gross debts, but the net debts. right? And since the U.S. tends to run a current account deficit, it will tend to run up external liabilities faster than external assets. So we haven't seen that effect in the balance of payments yet. So it's, again, one of these lags where the hangover from the yield curve having shifted, And in the period where the yield curve shifts higher, it's actually dollar bullish, right? People like to get paid more in in money market instruments and so forth, right? But eventually, as all the debt rolls into higher coupon instruments, it will have an impact on the balance of payments. And this is another example of these lags that we're talking about. It takes a long time before the real implications of a yield curve sitting at a much higher level maps into all the cash flows. And from a cash flow perspective, that bill, if you will, from 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 the yield curve shifting over the last couple of years, is going to be in around in the region one percent of GDP in terms of cash flow that has to be sent abroad, just simply paying the coupons on the bonds outstanding once they've rolled.
1: Right. I, I alongside Joseph Wang, I interviewed Robert McCauley, formerly of the the BIS. I think he said that even though there is more. The U.S. owes the rest of the world more dollars than the rest of the world owes the U.S. dollars. But when interest expenses go up, often it imposes more stress on the foreign borrowers in, do- in dollars because, like, the U.S. government can pay its bills, whereas if you're, you know, a-, a leveraged, you know, Panamanian entity who borrowed in dollars and now, you know, the dollar has appreciated rapidly and your interest expense has gone up, you know, you're in, you're in trouble, and that can cause sort of a squeeze for dollars. And yeah, so last year the U.S. led the way in interest rates rising. The Federal Reserve led the way, and that was massively bullish for the dollar. But also, when interest rates collapse, when there's a risk-off thing, that can also be bullish for the dollar. And you know, the dollar sold off as interest rates glided higher from like the summer of 2020. So you know, you got, that's the guy when people say the dollar smile. Like it's it's it can be you know left can be right and right can be left.
2: Yeah. So the dollar is a different currency to analyze than other currencies because it is the world's reserve currency we saw it in 2008 right that you have a mostly u.s driven issue subcrime crisis and so forth that is very bad for the united states right and nevertheless the dollar rallied so you you have to respect that the dollar can behave very differently from other currencies for that specific reason and and certainly there are going to be dollar borrowers around the world that can be immensely pressured around U.S. interest rates going up and so forth. I think the key thing to, to sort of think about very hard next year is are there places where actually the debt situation is substantially better than in the United States? So I'll give a simple example, right? Uh, Mexico is an economy that operates without almost any debt. Like it's a totally different structure like household debt Very low corporate debt, very low, right? So that economy doesn't really behave that differently in a situation where interest rates are eight percent compared to them being four percent. That I think is the difference, right? That you have certain economies around the world where the interest rate really doesn't drive the growth outlook in in a dramatic way, right? And they can have a degree of growth resilience, as though coincidence, right, that the the Central Bank of Mexico is still sort of in a fairly hawkish mode. We don't have any talk about cutting rates, even rates are dramatically higher in the US. But in the US, that's a little bit different. And I think that differentiation is something that can be more and more important, because eventually, we're getting to a point where debt levels, even for a country like United States, is going to be an issue. It's It used to always be the case that in, in major economies around the world, right? Debt levels, eh, it's not really an issue. Japan has a massive amount of debt, right? It has not really had debt issues as such. Uh, but I think we're getting to levels of debt where you have to be sort of sitting, sitting <laughs> at the front of the chair and, and think about, okay, is that really going to change? And I think for the US, it's probably going to change the last because it is the global reserve currency. But one of the... Most developed market in the world, i.e. United Kingdom, had this just 12 months ago, right? We had a government that announced tax cuts. The market thought, okay, this is crazy policy. We already have a too high fiscal deficit. And we had a situation where interest rates spiked higher and the currency collapsed, i.e. Uh, the British pound turning into a sort of EM type currency just from a correlation perspective. And we certainly have not had that in the U.S., but we should be aware that the debt level is getting to a point where correlation breaks is something that everybody should have in the back of their head, right? Because the one day the US interest rates go up and the dollar goes down at the same time, everything's going to change. But it has to be dramatic, a dramatic move. I'm just, I'm just saying that levels are such that it's something we should have and be open-minded to. And the day it happens, I'm going to tell you the market's going to be in in a frenzy. So that's a correlation to watch. I'm not predicting that's going to flip in the next couple of days. But I do think if we have a situation where US politics remains kind of disorderly, no, should we say, concerted effort to get fiscal situation under control, the risk is rising that we can have a situation where the correlation between US interest rates and the dollar can change. It's much more easier to have that correlation change if there are assets around the world that people like. It all goes back to the global growth variable, right? If there's no growth globally, it's hard to get people excited about global risk assets. But if we had that growth, if we had a recovery in Europe, if we had a recovery in China, uh, then there'd be more pressure on the US. And that's certainly something to watch. When you have a U.S. interest rates rise
1: and the dollar uh, sells off—that will be a, a day to remember. You mean in U.S. interest rates rising relative to other interest rates, right? Because if if interest rates go up globally on a single day, the dollar the, the dollar can can sell off too. If you have a big, you know, a big global growth number, a big because interest
2: it, it go up, but you, you mean? I'm rates referring. Are... I'm b- referring back to the U.K. debacle we had uh-huh. with Liz Truss, right, where. What was happening with UK interest rates was clearly a function of inappropriate fiscal policy, right? And the market immediately told policymakers this is not going to work. Bond yields much higher, currency down at the same time. It was a UK issue, and 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 it was interesting when that happened in the market. The prime minister out in a couple of weeks, so. That's something to watch. And yeah, I don't think there's something that's going to happen from one week to the other. But we have to be aware that we have such debt levels that we haven't tried for a while. Like, just look at the auctions, right? The fact that we have to have auctions on the calendar, along with economic data releases, tells you a lot. There is focus on this supply. And I don't think it's the only variable. I just argue during this call, right? The short end is really relevant. But it is a new regime we're already in, and it is something that creates uh, a different sort of risk to the dollar that is not materialized yet, but it's a, a risk that is there in the background, and it's something that investors have to pay attention to. When you say the dollar trades differently than other
1: interest rate, mo- you know, than other currencies, you know, it, it's its own world, so to so, so speak. What do you mean? Like, what is the fundamental model for valuing currency A against currency B, where? The dollar is different, given that alpha, you know, the dollar versus other currencies is the dominant pair because the dollar is the world reserve currency.
2: Yeah, like uh, as I said, I think 2008 is a very good example. We had a homegrown crisis, and the dollar rallied. Right, almost any other economy that would have a homegrown financial crisis would have seen their currency weaken dramatically. That's a key key difference, and it has to do with the dollar supply being sort of the anchor of everything, right? And if you have a some form of contraction in dollar supply, it supports the dollar, whereas in other uh, situations it would be viewed as a, as a something really bad and it would generate currency depreciation. So that's the core difference. And in terms of how you analyze things, right, that's also linked to the global growth dimension, right? You can actually have a situation where U.S. growth weakens And it impacts risk sentiment in a negative way, and it strengthens the dollar. Again, that will be very different if Mexico has that situation, Australia has that situation, economic growth being weak, and those economies will tend to take their currency down, right? So there's a kind of much more complicated link between risk sentiment and the dollar and growth and the dollar than you have for other currencies. And uh, when I analyze, when I do dollar forecast, right? What tends to be my most important variable is literally global growth. And uh, it can supersede the Fed even. So we have to be very careful. Obviously, in the last uh, month or so, we've seen big moves in, in US rates, and that has tended to, to be the most important force, right? But to get a big move in the dollar, it tends to coincide with big changes in global growth.
1: You know, let's say that the dollar versus the euro, which is what now, one one09 so you we know, have one point oh no one point zero nine dollars per one euro. What's your outlook on the euro, given that Europe Europe's economy is in a much worse place than the U.S. and how interest rates between the two countries are moving? You know, if, if the Fed cuts interest rates for or you know, or, or if the two year goes down by a lot more than the two year bond yield, the, the two year treasury yield. I mean, if the if the two year treasury yield goes down than by more than the, the two-year Bund yield, the German Bund yield. What, you know, is that going to be bullish or, or bearish for the dollars? Like how does your,
2: what's your view on the euro and how does that depend on
1: growth differentials and interest rate differentials?
2: So I think for, for the euro, I'll kind of have to split it into time horizons, right? So in the short term, we have technical forces that actually could be quite dollar bullish, excuse me, quite bullish for euro dollar. And that is, that could be euro buying from CTAs, We could have euro buying from real money investors as they rebalance their portfolios around uh, end of November. Uh, But if I look beyond those technical forces, uh, we have a situation where uh, growth is incredibly weak in the eurozone, credit is incredibly weak in the eurozone, and inflation is normalizing faster in the eurozone than it is in the US. So uh, a rate cut is potentially on the table for March, right? So from those for those reasons, it's hard for me to get very bullish on the euro beyond technical reasons. If we have a massive move globally in the dollar, the euro will always participate, but I don't think the euro is going to be leading. So that's, that's really uh, one of the complicating forces when you think about, okay, can we really have a big turn in the dollar? It's the fact that it doesn't look like the euro is going to be the leading force. And it also doesn't look like the China is going to be the leading force, right? So you have to find pockets. Okay, you trade the dollar against gold, you trade against Swiss franc, you trade against emerging market currencies, maybe a combination of those things. But it would be much easier if you thought, okay, the European economy is going to do fantastically well, then it would be a layup trade. So what is a
1: layup trade? Like When you short
2: the dollar, what's going to
1: the trade to short the dollar against?
2: To be honest, it's very rare to find a layup trade. But... <laughs> <laughs> um, I want to slam dunk trade, yens, yeah, right? Yeah, now. exactly. Yeah, I think in the very short term, I, I think the dollar has a true for technical forces, so that there might be a layup there for the next one to two weeks. But looking into next year, I think we are in a lower rate environment. And that means that the leadership in terms of which currencies, which counter assets for the dollar are leading it's going to change, i.e., it's going to go away from the growth currencies and it's going to be the defensive place, i.e., gold, Swiss franc, maybe even the yen. So that's the sort of transition point we're at. And that could be very interesting as we look into 24. Maybe it started already in the last couple of days.
1: Okay. So you're, you're bullish on the Japanese yen relative to the dollar, or you're bullish on the Swiss franc relative to the dollar, bullish on gold relative to the dollar. Because I put you in this uh risk risk on bucket and risk on is bearish for the the dollar i i didn't know that but okay so okay so and even the japanese yen well, i mean what do you think about the japanese yen talk about interest rate differentials you can get in the dollar 5.5% on the yen you get z- less than zero i mean you know where where are you going to put your
2: money right we've had an incredibly move in the yen and we've just started to to peak out in the last few days around 150 the scenario in which the yen moves a lot is one where global interest rates go down. And at the same time, we actually have persistent inflation in Japan, right? So they have to continue to normalize policy with a long lag, right? They are the only, effectively the only central bank in the world, maybe you can say PBOC, but one of the only central banks in the world that would have a really tightened policy, right? So if it is the case that with the stimulus they have in the pipeline now, Uh, They are forced to actually continue to normalize policy, yield curve control getting fully abandoned and so forth. That could be an interesting combination. But it's a very expensive currency to be long, as you said, right? We have a 5% interest rate differential now, right? So you have to be very precise unless you are confident that we're going to have a really big structural move in rates, right? So there's a timing issue there. Uh, I think there's some technical issues playing out now again in the short term. But if you really want to catch the big move, in dollar yen, you probably want to time it to the point when uh, the market's really shift sniffing that rate cuts are getting close.
1: What are currencies where it's you know, very cheap to be long, i.e. there's a lot of carry, are there, are there any carry currencies, so you know, high interest bearing currencies that you think will outperform the dollar?
2: Most of this year, there's been arguments to, to be long Latin American countries And, and the reason is very simple. They actually got their inflation under control relatively fast in this cycle. And uh, they can handle high interest rates. They're cautious in terms of cutting rates. So uh, you have very nice carry in those economies. Uh, we came into this year with those currencies being cheap. So they've been some of the best currency investments for uh, for this year. Right. So those have been the right trades. They they come a decent way, right? So the entry points for those trades are not fantastic. I think they can probably go a bit further. And obviously, if they just if they're just stuck, they don't move. You still make money on the carry, right? So it's not it's not something where you, where you where you have to have a big move immediately. So that's really the opposite to the yen, right? Where it has to move quickly if you're making the bet.
1: Yeah, it's like, and I know you know you know this is for the audience. Like, if the Brazilian real doesn't move against the dollar and you're long Brazilian real, you make money because yeah, your interest rates are, are high, and there's so like there's a there's a depreciation that's always that's priced into the forward price of the real against the dollar just as there's a appreciation price down against the yen because it's yielding yielding less. okay so and what, what's your level of what, what's your level of confidence i mean you, you were saying before this interview started sound like the the cta move commodity trading advisors in in the dollar is pretty extreme what's your what's your level of confidence
2: well so we know that essentially the dollar longs in that space got pretty maxed out over the last few months right so the potential for an unwind is very big. It's almost like we need you need something positive to happen with U.S. data to avoid it. So I think the risk of that unwind is very big. In terms of of having high conviction views, I think uh, the area where it's hard to have conviction is in in the global growth variable. I just don't see the probability of a, a big recovery being very high. But uh, in terms of rates, I would say. Uh, are interest rates going to go higher than two and a half percent in real space? Or are they going to get get lower? I think uh, we have a very strong asymmetry to high, excuse me, lower real interest rates. Right, uh, some kind of mean reversion back to where we came from. Uh, so, in terms of constructing portfolios, that's a theme you want to have in there. Whether you have want to have it directly in fixed income, or whether you have want to have an assets that are correlated to what's going on with that, uh, that that's a more complicated question. But I think there's Very strong asymmetry there, probably especially in sort of the five-point area of curve where you don't have to worry so much about bond issuance, premium, term premium, whatever you want to call it. So I think there's very strong asymmetry there. And I I think there'll be dollar trades to do in the next six months. I think there's a tactical one to do in the short term, and we're looking for entry points to do the structural trades as well. Got it. So tactically
1: short the dollar in the short term. Tactically long rates. Do you have a view on the differential? You know, the yield curve was extremely inverted. Much of it still is inverted, but it's less so. So steepened. You know, from a extreme inversion to to less extreme inversion. Do you think it's going to steepen? You, know, how is this curve you're going to get uninverted? A bull steepener or or a bear? Steepener? I think it sounds like maybe you're in the bull steepening camp.
2: Yeah, I can I can see some bull steepening play out. I think. Once the Fed gets comfortable with inflation outlook, they're going to endorse that directional rates is down, right? And that's going to trigger trigger a big move. And there's going to be persistent concerns about the supply. So that means that perhaps we can have some steepening, right? But I think really, really the (laughs) the big move to capture is directional move in the whole curve, right? So I think sometimes there's too much, much focus on the slope. And actually the focus should be on just getting the overall directional move, right? And that remains the case. And I think, yeah, just think about it this way, right? If we had 5.5% rates and the Fed decides we need to get rates back to normal, that's 300 basis points of cuts. So we can have plenty of macro balls. So it's good to be a macro-focused person because the macro shifts, the macro shocks, still are going to drive a huge amount of the action in the market, which is always fun.
1: Right, well, yeah, it's great to have you here talk about your work at Ex- Exanti Data. Talk to us also about uh, Market Reader, your your AI tool you've been developing to, to help investors. What is like the biggest or you know most fascinating thing your your AI model at, at Market Reader has shown you, or an insight that that's given you that you think, oh wow, you know I or, or you know a lot of my team or the, the, the human beings, this is really like you know, delivering something that human beings can't do.
2: So the way I use uh, Market Reader on a day-to-day basis is to have it tell me stuff that I otherwise wouldn't have noticed, right? So I'm my career has been to do macro analysis for institutional investors, right? Market Reader gives me great insight into the equity market, right? We've had a bunch of retail companies in the last couple of days come out with disappointing guidance, right? So I get all those snippets from Market Reader because it explains all the, all the moves in the market. and. That's very helpful to get some micro color to supplement your macro narrative. And a lot of the advantage is that you just get a lot of information covering many more instruments that you can kind of generate as a human. But I'll just give you a very simple example of something we're developing now and we're going to launch in the next couple of weeks. And that's what we call long-term summaries, right? If you want to look up a stock that you haven't followed day and night, uh, we're going to have available on the platform Summaries of a of a length of one month, one quarter. So if you say, okay, I'm interested in this stock, I'm not used to trading. Just tell me what has been the really the key things moving this stock over the last month, and it's going to be there in a nanosecond, right? And you can do that for all you know, 10,000 stocks on the platform. That's just an incredibly quick way of accessing a lot of information. If you have to do that type of analysis manually, it's gonna it's actually going to be so much work that you end up, you're going to end up not doing it. <laughs> So, so uh, it's the
1: macro sensitivity. So, oh, this stock rallies a bunch when interest rates go down or when oil does this.
2: Yeah, it could be like it could be. For example, if you if you look at energy stocks, right, the system is going to tell you, okay, over the last month, energy stocks uh, rallied a ton. They had some big moves. That was because oil prices went up, right? Then we have some big down days, what driven by maybe some specific earnings releases. Like it's just a broad based summary of all the drivers. We do all the analysis in a 10-minute increment space, right? So we've done all the analysis in a very high-frequency space. That's necessary to be analytical, be, uh, like do, be precise in the analysis. But once you've done that, once you've done all that weeding out the noise and getting to a signal-only stream, you can do incredible things within really aggregated to sector-level, economy-wide level, or take a step back and look at it over the last month, last quarter. And that's when the technology is obviously powerful because it saves you a ton of time on doing analysis that would be incredibly tedious to do manually. So we're, we're excited to launch that and we're going to continue to launch new things, right? Because yeah, we can apply the technology in many, many different ways. So we're not going to be done next week if we launch a big upgrade right then. What about
1: when you don't know why an individual stock goes up? Like for example, when A year ago, in the fall of 2022, oil prices declined, but energy stocks continued to rally. I I guess the reason is people thought they were underweight energy and wanted to buy more energy stocks. Mm -hmm. And like, what would a a model? And I'm not, I'm not critiquing uh, Market Reader, but just the the act of trying to find out what moves an individual stock it can be very Mm -hmm. hard. Like, what if there's no, you know, what if the, what if it's all noise and there's no signal?
2: So actually, the the feedback we get from users is that. They like to have a consistent framework. And if we know that the market reader technology goes through the different dimensions of price action, you know, news, cross-asset correlation, events, flows, and some fun, and couldn't find a good explanation, that actually is helpful in itself. Then we we will say, okay, there's a stock that is moving a decent amount here. Yeah. Actually we went through all the models and there was no obvious reason why that rarely happens but that in itself is good information and we should be honest about that as opposed to trying to come up with you know some random explanation like we want to have a robust explanation especially in the days of AI like we certainly use AI in the process right but you don't want to put too much pressure on the AI you want to say That's if you've cool. gone through the method and there was nothing the the result should be okay this is a, a move that's very hard to explain. And so our explanatory power with all our models, it's called it like 90%, right? So there might be 10% where we say, okay, this was hard to explain, but we're okay with conveying that because we know our models are sound.
1: Good answer. Yeah. Maybe is it also a time where, okay, every bank is, is rallying, except there's one bank that's not rallying. That's interesting. And that's for and Absolutely.
2: Computers. Absolutely. Like so we have correlation models like that. So okay, if you pick one asset and you look at everything that's normally correlated and you see one that's standing out, then that's a kind of like almost like a screening device to figure out okay, what the heck's going on over there. So that's certainly a specific way to use the tool. Yeah. Well, Jens,
1: thank you so much for, for joining us. People can find you on Twitter at J Nordvig. And thanks everyone for watching.
2: Thank you very much.